Hello and welcome to Cybernia, a podcast exploring science in Ireland and beyond, brought to you in association with Discover Science and Engineering. I'm Lenny Antonelli, and with me in studio today are Sylvia Leatham, Connor Farrell, and Trina O'Connell. Coming up on the show, Sylvia visits VLab, a 3D virtual environment at the Institute of Art, Design and Technology in Dublin. Connor talks to world-renowned astrophysicist Jocelyn Bell Burnell about a unique type of star called the Pulsar, and about why Pluto is no longer a planet. And I go back to the place that first inspired my interest in science. Now, Sylvia recently paid a visit to Dunleary's Institute of Art, Design and Technology to check out a very exciting element of the school's research into cyber psychology. She's here now to tell us about her experience in the college's virtual lab. Sylvia, maybe you can start by telling us what cyber psychology is? Yes, indeed, Lenny. Um, Quite simply, it's the study of the impact of technology on human behaviour and on the human mind. So as part of the cyber psychology studies that they have running out in the Institute of Art, Design and Technology in Dunleary, they have constructed what they call a virtual lab or V-lab for short. Um, They describe it as an immersive reality environment. It's essentially a 3D space that you can physically interact with. Sounds a bit like the holodeck. Uh, It is a little bit like the holodeck, maybe not quite as uh, polished as that, (laughs) but uh, perhaps in the future it will be. Um, The reason they built this uh, environment is they're hoping it will help them do research into areas like games development, uh, human interaction with computers and high-end graphics. So I went along uh, to Dunleary to experience the virtual lab for myself and I met up with Andrew Power, who's the head of the Creative Technology School, there in the college and first of all I asked him to describe the space we were in. Uh, we're going to play you a little clip from that now uh, just to explain that there is a little bit of background hum on this because there was a very loud air conditioner in the room that they uh, okay. need to, to keep the equipment cool. Uh, so we're going to hear from that now. We're, I suppose I should describe where we're standing. We're standing in a room within a room. Um, this virtual laboratory is, is, a, is a room with back projection on, on four sides, three walls and the floor. And it allows us to simulate environments uh, or virtual worlds in, in a whole variety of different spaces. The one that we're in at the moment is a, a replica of the Natural History Museum in Dublin. So if you look around, you can see the walls and the, the corridors and the pillars of the Natural History Museum. And as we walk around the space, the room uh, moves with us, or, or we appear to walk around the room. So I just have to say, this is actually amazing. Like my first reaction to this is, wow, uh, I have these uh, quite heavy uh, 3D glasses on me, which I believe are tracking my eye movements. Is that right? Yeah, they're doing a couple of things. First of all, they're creating the illusion of three dimensions by altering the, the image that's being projected into the screen. They're also tracking your location in the room so that as you move your head or your body uh, around the room, the room moves with you. And uh, so you, you appear to, to walk around this virtual space. Um, and the illusion is, is enhanced by uh, sound as well, which the quadraphonic sound, uh, if we were in an environment with, say, traffic, would give you the illusion of moving past different objects. So what, what did it feel like to be in this 3D environment? 
Uh, it was kind of unusual. Um, visually, uh, everything you're looking at looks uh, a little bit like a video game. But because you're standing inside this sort of cube room and you've got 3D images on four sides or in front of you, left and right and on the floor as well, you feel like you're actually inside the game. Like if it was a video game, it's a little bit uh, disconcerting at first. Uh, also, I was wearing these 3D glasses, but they're not like the 3D glasses you wear in the cinema. They're like almost like, um, you know, when you go to the optician and they give you the, the really heavy glasses yes. to put on to test your eyes. It, it was like that, like really, really heavy on my face. Um, and then like beyond this cube where there are images, uh, the rest of the room is in, in darkness. And uh, Andrew told me that some people actually experience motion sickness if they stay in the environment too long. Um, so they had this uh, first environment that I was in. They had it done up like the Natural History Museum and there were some objects that were appeared to be floating in front of my eyes. And I, I felt like I could reach out and touch and them. And could you pick them up virtually in any way or? Um, well, actually, it's interesting because there was a handheld controller that uh, that Andrew had as well. And that actually lets you interact with the environment. And uh, I asked wow. him to uh, explain uh, a bit more about this because it, it, it looked very unusual. I'm a little bit distracted because you're holding a kind of a, a big controller in your hand and I can see like another like almost virtual hand emerging out of the ether. What's, yeah. what's that all about? So what I'm holding in my hand is, uh, it looks somewhat like a TV con remote control, but what it's doing is, this is uh, one of the ways in which you can interact with the space. So although I'm holding what looks like a remote control in my hand, what you're seeing floating in front of you is a kind of disembodied hand, a bit like something out of... Um, uh, you know, like a horror movie. It's yeah, kind of freaking yeah, me yeah. out here, I have to say. And uh, we can use we use that to pick up and move things around virtual space. So we could pick up that object over there, lift it out of its container, and move it over there virtually in space and, and interact with this environment. It also allows us to move around the space in, in a way other than walking. So in addition to you physically walking around this room and seeing movement, we can we can also move up and down and left and right. Um, by toggling these controls. So what's the virtual lab being used for at the moment? Uh, lots of things actually, all in the area of cyber psychology. And uh, I asked Andrew to tell me a little bit more about that. What's interesting for us about this uh, research space that we have is that we have a range of different disciplines in IADT who are using it for different purposes. Um, the psychologists are using it for examining things like aversion therapy and for understanding people's sense of place. But our computer science graduates and students uh, are very much interested in the gaming capabilities of it. And we have another environment, which we might show you later, uh, which has been developed to be uh, a mock-up of a bombed-out city somewhere in Iraq. And these hand controllers that we have in our hand, instead of uh, pointed fingers that you have at the moment, uh, turn into a semi-automatic weapon and you can run around the streets of Baghdad shooting people and scoring games. Um, and then our filmmakers use it for a third purpose where we can show films in three dimension, we can perhaps uh, attach cameras to a dolly pointing upwards, downwards, left and right and shoot a film and then project it on each of the four walls so that again you're in a, a 3D space that isn't an animated environment but is a, a real world environment. 
Wow. So uh, apart from the Natural History Museum, did you get to experience any other virtual environments? I did, yes. Um, I asked him uh, a bit more about gaming. So uh, he invited me to take a look at a war game simulation. Okay, now we've moved into a different uh, virtual environment. And as you can see, if you look around you, um, we're in downtown Baghdad. And that disembodied hand that you were talking about earlier has turned magically into this revolver. And uh, you see, we, we can fire at some of those uh, combatants over there and see if we can shoot them. Um, so we're seeing a, a, a weapon that's kind of floating in front of us and there's also a, there's a jeep and I can see there's uh, soldiers across the road, there's a helicopter flying above us. This is okay, so let's just step closer into that space okay. and uh, start to walk around. Oh, wow. Okay, so... <laughs> I feel like I'm moving, although I... I I know so I'm not moving, but I feel yeah, like I'm moving. Um, let's go down this road here. Watch out for the tanks. So is this going to be the future of games? Is, is that what this is all about? Or? Yeah, well, obviously, not many people have a living room large enough to install a, <laughs> a, a, a facility like this. But miniaturization of this kind of stuff is not that far away. Oh, and really? advanced use of headsets. Headsets are getting better and better. So. You, you won't actually need to step into a room, but you can wear the kind of goggles that you're wearing at the moment and uh, achieve similar things. So this sounds like pretty exciting news for gamers. Yeah, um, I mean, the feeling I, I got in there was really like being within a video game. It was very exciting. I, I could imagine that being the next uh, step for gaming, all right. Um, so finally then, I asked Andrew who else uses the 3D space at the college? Well, it's used by our undergraduate psychology students and our undergraduate uh, computer science students in multimedia. It's also used by, uh, we have a postgraduate program in cyber psychology and they're quite interested in studying the effects of technology on people's behaviour, so they're using it. And then as I mentioned, our film students uh, have been using it quite a bit as well. Um, see we've just magically morphed into a third environment. This is actually something that we built ourselves and is a 3D rendering of one of our classrooms. So we can actually uh, model behaviours in a real classroom and then come and do it in a virtual classroom and see if there's changes. So for example we're doing some experiments on memory at the moment and giving people memory tests in a virtual envir environment, in a virtual classroom, giving them the same recall tests in the actual classroom and seeing if there's any difference, see if people are better at remembering things in the right context. So more kinds of experiments like that. Okay. And do any companies use this space? We've had a lot of interest from a number of different companies uh, for things like prototyping products, um, in retail, thinking about uh, placement of goods on shelves rather than actually having to do it you can do it virtually and see how that works and then move things around obviously architects love this kind of thing because having built a building you can or at least designed a building on paper you can then step into this room and walk around it and go up the stairs look out the window get the view of the city wow. so there's there's many uh, commercial applications for this kinds of technology as well Wow, I, I really want to go on this now. Where, where can <laughs> listeners go for more information? Uh, they can go to the Institute's website. That's uh, iadt.ie. Okay, thanks very much, Sylvia. No problem. Now for something that might be a bit different for the show. Recently, I started thinking about what inspired my love for science when I was a teenager, particularly my interest in marine biology. And for me, it all started at a particular site on the coast in Galway. 
So I decided to go back there for a look to see what biological treasures I could find. So I'm standing on a rocky outcrop in Salt Hill, just off the beach, just west of Galway City. It's a grey and windy and drizzly day here in the west of Ireland. But it was here as a teenager that I think I first really developed my love for, for marine biology and for, for science in general. Because while we don't really have a, a huge diversity of animal life here in Ireland, I reckon it's these habitats, the rocky shores and the rock pools, that host the greatest diversity of animal life. You can go for a wander among the rocks and the pools and look for critters and I reckon you know within 20 minutes or half an hour you'll have found dozens of animal species and dozens of different groups of animals as well potentially. So I'm going to go for a bit of a wander today and explore among the rocks and, and, and see what I can find. The first thing I notice about the rocks today is that they're absolutely encrusted with barnacles. Barnacles are one of those things that you see at the seashore all the time but don't really pay much attention to. Those large kind of browny grey encrustations that cover the rocks with their little hard plated shells. Um, these are actually, a, they're a crustacean there, so they're a relative of, of crabs and lobsters. And when the tide is in and they're covered by water, they stick out, they open their, the, top of the tops of the little plates that protect them and stick out these little feathery appendages and filter feed from the water. They're all, absolutely all over the rocks here, um, which is common of the rocky shores of Ireland, of course. Uh, loads and loads of mussels here today as well, and mussels as well open up when the tide is in and they're covered by water and filter feed from the water. And even the mussels are covered in barnacles. There's barnacles growing all over the mussels here. Well, so I've just found a couple of small rocks that are absolutely covered with a sponge. Um, sponges being one of the one of the simplest animals on Earth, really, just sort of a, a big mass of, of cells stuck together, basically. Although this one has a little bit of a of, of sort of structure to it. This this appears to be. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say it's the breadcrumb breadcrumb sponge. Yeah, you're probably used to seeing this if you've ever sort of gone for a, a wander on the rocks uh, on any shore in Ireland. It's a sort of a, a soft yellow covering with sort of what appear to be small chimneys sticking up out of it. And it's through these chimneys that the water passes when the tide is in, so the sponge can, can filter feed. I've just spotted some small species of fish darting about in the rock pool here. He's sort of uh, just kind of sitting very quietly until there's any kind of disturbance or rippling of the water and then he'll dart off very fast to somewhere more sheltered across the pool. He would appear to be either a, a blenny or a goby. And they're two of our sort of most common little species of, of rock pool fish, but I really can't tell uh, what species he is can, uh, to, to, sort of a, to a very accurate level. He's sort of just sitting there now, not doing a whole lot. I've just found my first anemones of the day. Normally I spot them right away because they're sort of so so impressive looking, but um haven't seen any for a while, but I see three here kind of clinging to one rock just above a rock pool. They're red anemone. These are the sort of most common anemone you'll see in Ireland, which is known as the, the beadlet anemone. Actina equina is its Latin name. And because they're out of the water, their tentacles are in at the moment. So they're all closed up. If the tide was in and they were covered by water, their tentacles would be out and fully emerged and they'd be stinging anything that went past um, and paralyzing it and dragging it into its body cavity to, to feed on. And the anemones belong to a group of animals known as the Cnidarians. Now jellyfish, or jellies to be technically correct because obviously they're not actually fish, are also Cnidarians. And the, the anemone's body plan is basically sort of just like an upside down jellyfish. If you think of a jellyfish, it sort of has the tentacles hanging down from its body um, and they sort of lead up to its mouth and the tentacles catch things as it floats along and uh, draws them into the mouth. 
The anemone is sort of the opposite. It's upside down, so its tentacles are sticking up rather than down, and it's stuck to a rock. But it's basically the same body plan. And they'd always heard that this anemone species, the beadlet anemone, could be found in a, a bright green colour. And I'd never actually seen one before. I'd always be looking among the rocks and always seeing red ones and never seeing green ones. But just last week, I, I finally saw some extremely impressive bright green ones um, up on Ackle Island. So... That was quite a find. One thing I haven't really mentioned so far is just how difficult life in this sort of habitat can be. If you live on one of these rocks, think of all the constant challenges you're facing. You'll probably spend about half your time submerged by the water and maybe half your time having to deal with the potential for drying out and desiccation. That will vary depending on whether you're on the lower shore or the upper shore, where exactly you are. But the habitat is constantly in flux. If you have to deal with the salty air, and if you live in one of the rock pools, when the tide is out, the water will be constantly evaporating, meaning the water will be getting saltier and saltier and saltier until the tide finally comes back in. So it's an extremely variable habitat that's constantly in flux. And if you think about it, the diversity of animal life on the rocky shores is really incredible. If you think of all the animal groups you can find here, you can find all sorts of mollusks like mussels and limpets and sea snails and... You've got all sorts of crustaceans like barnacles and shrimp and prawns and crabs. You've got sponges, you've got sea stars, you've got anemones which are part of the Cnidarian group. You've got all sorts really. Now Connor, you met with the Belfast-born astrophysicist Jocelyn Bell Burnell at the Astronomy Ireland Christmas Lecture. And you spoke to her about Pluto and about pulsars too, I believe. Can you maybe start by telling us why she's such an important figure in astrophysics? Yeah, well, uh, Jocelyn Bell Burnell is um, a very, very important uh, astronomer. Back in the 1960s, I think it was 1967, uh, as a PhD student, she actually discovered pulsars. Now, pulsars are a really strange, exotic object. Um, they're left over from, from dead stars. Um, her work was actually so important that it led to uh, a Nobel Prize for physics being won in 1974, and uh, the winner of that prize was actually her supervisor, uh, Anthony Hewish. Now, more recently, she played uh, a big role in the uh, controversial reclassifying Pluto as a minor planet, back when uh, it wasn't uh, a planet anymore. That took place in 2006, and um, as I said, that was very controversial. So um, the first thing uh, we actually spoke about was uh, defining the difference between a minor planet and a real planet. There are lots and lots of things that go round the sun of which planets are one group. But there's also asteroids and things from further out as well, bits and pieces and lumps and comets and all sorts of things. The original suite of planets did not include Pluto. The original planets were formed alongside the Sun. Pluto was grabbed later, and that's why it's in a rather peculiar orbit compared with the other planets. So the definition of a planet these days excludes things that are not big enough to be counted as planets, excludes moons and artificial satellites and other stars, of course, uh, and is designed to include what you might call the classical planets, Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus and Neptune. Now, Professor Bell Burnell did some important work as a PhD student that resulted in her supervisor, Anthony Hewish, winning a Nobel Prize. Um, she discovered pulsars and she explained a little about them to us. But um, aside from your work uh, with the IAU and, and of course elsewhere, um, you're most well known, I suppose, to the general public for finding what 
uh, were once called little green men. But of course, we now know that these objects uh, are pulsars. Maybe you could tell us a little bit what pulsars are and uh, where they actually come from. Pulsars are incredible objects. I still find them hard to believe in. They weigh about the same as the sun, but they're only 10 miles across. So they're incredibly dense, very, very compact. And this in turn produces some very interesting and curious phenomena. They are the cores of massive stars that end their lives with an explosion, a thing we called a supernova. And we used to believe that in a supernova, a star was totally wiped out. We now know that the core gets shrunk and preserved as one of these pulsars or neutron stars, as they're sometimes called. So, uh, as Professor uh, Bell Burnell said, when a massive star ex- uh, explodes, its core becomes compressed uh, into an object the size of, the city, uh, of a city. You could easily fit a neutron star into the space uh, covered uh, by the Greater Dublin area. You could probably fit a neutron star into Galway Bay as wow. well. Uh, so, um, like, if you imagine the entire mass of the sun, now keep in mind that our own sun is a little over 100 times the width of Earth. If you can imagine all that mass compressed into space at the size of Dublin. Dublin. Yeah, it, it it sounds big, but in astronomical terms, when you're that's 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 a really really uh, extreme object. Now, as well as all that mass, you've got an extremely highly compressed uh, magnetic field, and when uh, particles get caught up in this magnetic field, they can actually shoot out uh, electromagnetic radiation and, and in particular uh, radio waves. So when you have one of these neutron stars that is shooting out this radiation and spinning, that's when it's known as a pulsar. I've seen pulsars being described um, as, as something like uh, a lighthouse. Uh, how would that work? Pulsars could be used for navigation when we travel in spaceships through the galaxy. And indeed, the US is launching a satellite called XNAV, probably in 2014, to check out this idea. Like a lighthouse, each pulsar has its own flash rate and its own pattern of flashes. They're unique, apparently. So you can take a fix on a pulsar, work out which one it is, take a fix on a couple more, work out which they are, and deduce where you are in the galaxy. So they're navigation beacons for interstellar travel. Would astronomers use uh, regular optical telescopes or would they use radio telescopes to, uh, to observe pulsars? The vast majority of pulsars are just radio emitting objects. Young ones like the one in the Crab Nebula also gives out optical pulses and some of them give out x-rays and gamma rays. But radio is the most normal form of a pulsar. So most of the radiation from a pulsar is radio waves as opposed to visible light or UV radiation or infrared? That's correct, yeah. So instead of using uh, optical telescopes, uh, we'd use kind of giant satellite dishes, which um, are radio telescopes, and they're specially designed to pick up radio waves. Um, So along with these radio waves, uh, we can actually listen to uh, the pulsar as it rotates. Now, um, some pulsars can rotate very slowly. Um, Again, imagine that massive... Dublin-sized object rotating maybe once a second, twice a second. Wow. That's pretty fast. Um, but then some of them actually uh, rotate so much faster and it almost sounds like a bee or a wasp. Um, they actually uh, rotate so fast that the surface of the star is, is, is moving at a considerable fraction uh, of the speed of light, which is uh, pretty amazing. <laughs> So 
we just heard the sound of a few different uh, pulsars there. Uh, Connor, I can imagine such a discovery, um, Professor Bell Burnell discovering pulsars, must have had a, a pretty profound effect on the world of astronomy. It did indeed. Um, in theory, astronomers kind of thought that pulsars would exist, but uh, there was no observational evidence. Um, so uh, Professor Bell Burnell's observations back in 1967 were actually the first sighting of neutron stars in the form of pulsars. Um, it was a hugely, hugely important discovery and uh, those um, neutron stars uh, provided a missing link into um, the science behind uh, stellar evolution. So it really, really was worth uh, that Nobel Prize. What did it feel like to actually see those pulses on those sheets of paper and, and, and to get that data? Finding the first pulsar was actually very worrying. The signal was absolutely outrageous. And when you're presented with something outrageous, you've got to check everything. Is it a fault with our equipment? Is it some interference over the Radio Astronomy Observatory? Is it a satellite in a funny orbit causing interference? Is it this? Is it that? Is it the other? Um, we actually spent a month gradually being forced to believe that these things were way out in the galaxy, beyond the solar system. And at that point, I found the second one. And that was really good, because by then we knew it wasn't a fault with the equipment, it wasn't interference, it wasn't this, it wasn't that. And then subsequently found the third and the fourth. But finding the first one was not fun. Finding the second one was lovely. So what do they think that pulsars were at first? Back when the first pulsar uh, was found, it was given an unofficial uh, designation called LGM-1. And that was a kind of uh, a tongue-in-cheek uh, name, meaning uh, Little Green Men 1. Um, <laughs> sometimes people will say that you won't find straight lines in nature because it's just too unnatural. Okay, So uh, the signal from this pulsar was, was a very, very regular signal. It was, it was timed perfectly. And um, initially, a lot of people thought, wait a minute, the this couldn't have been created by nature. This could be an extraterrestrial civilization trying to make contact. Um, but I think at the back of, of, of all uh, the minds of um, astronomers, I think everybody kind of knew that this was eventually going to be uh, explained. Um, so I asked uh, uh, Professor Bell Burnell uh, about this and, and what she thought. Was there any point during this period where you actually thought that maybe this could be an alien civilization trying to make contact uh, with other civilizations around the galaxy? Well, it's one of the things you have to think about, but it's pretty unlikely. And when you find a second one, let alone a third and a fourth, it becomes extremely unlikely that it's Little Green Men or ET or whatever you want to call them, because it's unlikely there's two lots of these Little Green Men on opposite sides of the galaxy, both signalling to planet Earth in a rather stupid way, technically speaking, at a rather crazy frequency. It, it just doesn't add up. It has to be some new kind of star. That's pretty much it for this episode of Cybernia. But first, Trina is here to tell us about some upcoming science events. Trina, what's happening? Loads happening in February. So first of all, the Black Rock Castle Observatory's first Friday for February will contain beautiful data and astronomical hoaxes and hysterias. For full details on all events on that evening, visit bco.ie. Science Gallery's next show, Edible, launches on Thursday the 9th of February from 6pm. Get the lowdown on the upcoming exhibition about food and our perceptions of what's tasty. Tickets will be 7 50 and free for member plus folks. More details at sciencegallery.com. On Saturday the 11th of February, the Natural History Museum in Dublin will host a tour illustrating the connection between the museum and Darwin. The tour will start at 2pm and no booking is required. 
And just some advance warning, Engineers Week will run from the 27th of February to the 4th of March, so start clearing space in your calendars. If you will be running an event, you can submit it to be advertised on their website alongside all of the other events. So if you visit engineersweek.ie, you can start it out there. Thanks, Trina. No bother. That's all for this episode of Cybernia, brought to you in association with Discover Science and Engineering. You can find us on the web at cybernia.ie, at twitter.com slash cybernia, at facebook.com slash cybernia, or you can email us at podcast at cybernia.ie. Thanks to all our contributors this week. Uh, thanks to Near FM and to our producer, Gavin. And thanks to you for listening to the show. Mm-hmm.